What Makes a Great Leader? In the podcast series, 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, I explore this topic with Richard Lummis. We take a look at examples from history, from business, from current events, and even from the movies. If you're interested in all in business leadership, whether you're a CEO or whether you're a middle manager, this is the podcast series for you. We take a look at presidents and everyone in between. I hope you will check us out. 12 o'clock high. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. In this episode, Matt and I take a deep dive into the Mylon EpiPen continuing saga. In this episode, Matt Kelly and I take a look at the continuing Mylon EpiPen saga as we focus on a Federal Claims Act that Mylon mischaracterized EpiPen as a generic drug, therefore claiming they owed less reimbursement to uh, Medicare and Medicaid uh, for payment of these products and uh, garnered more money. This, of course, was an incorrect characterization. Mylon paid a significant fine to the Securities and Exchange Commission based upon the whistleblower FCPA information on this mischaracterization. We consider how this mischaracterization could have happened and use it to talk about the siloed nature of many corporate functions and the role of a chief compliance officer in cutting through these silos. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the wearer of extraordinarily cool shoes, together with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, who also now serves as the fashion police at all compliance conferences. Back again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Matt, uh, I assume you arrived safe and sound in Boston after Converge 19? I did indeed, Tom. And um, for everybody listening, we should note, please look up the Converge 2019 tweets and photos and find a picture of the shoes that Tom is referring to here that he wore when he spoke at the Converge conference, which were the most discussed item on social media, I think, at the Converge conference. Certainly much more discussed than my uh, keynote speech. So uh, big shout out to Matt Kelly for uh, putting it out there because it, it turned into a thing. Did indeed. Um, so Matt, you wrote about something that really turned into a thing uh, with uh, Mylan and their EpiPen continuing saga. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So this was a SEC enforcement action that came down at the uh, very end of September where the SEC fined Mylan $30 million for poor disclosure and disclosure control failures. Um, Failure to disclose in its financial statements the ongoing issue of its EpiPens, where Mylan had been under investigation by the Justice Department and the Medicare regulators for several years, um, that it had misclassified its EpiPens as generic drugs. Um, If you are a generic drug and you're distributing it to Medicaid, then uh, you have to pay Medicaid a rebate because it's covering the cost of these generic drugs. Um, But the rebate that you pay to Medicaid is lower than if you are a branded drug. Um, So if you misclassify your product as a generic when it should have been a branded drug, you are essentially overcharging Medicaid for your product. 
which was the original sin here that Milan made in the early 2010s that led to a Justice Department False Claims Act case, which led to a $465 million settlement in 2016, which Milan did not disclose to investors, and it did not accrue any uh, contingency funds to cover that $465 million. Um, until it sprung the whole shebang on investors at the end of 2016. And the SEC said that was a disclosure failure. They should have been keeping investors more informed about this. Milan did not. So bang, at the end of September, they also got a $30 million fine from the SEC on the civil side for not disclosing all of this more fully all along the way. And that's convoluted, but that's, that's the background that we have here. So in this case, we don't have the cover-up being worse than the crime. We have the not talking about it being a little less worse than the original underlying crime. Uh, we do. And my whole bone of contention with Mylan here, uh, which, by the way, um, Mylan is now under agreement to be acquired by Pfizer sometime in mid-2020. So Mylan is going to go away soon enough. Um, but this, I thought, was a really good example of flawed or siloed risk management, where the legal team at Milan was doing its best and diligently working to reduce the legal liabilities uh, over the EpiPen classification and the False Claims Act lawsuit. Okay, fine. That's what a legal department is supposed to do. Um, But those risks were not being conveyed to Milan's finance team and its financial reporting team, where they would be able to understand Because this is happening over here on the legal side. We have our own financial reporting and disclosure risks here on the finance side. And we need to respond accordingly to avoid any action from the SEC. That is the way it should work. That is not the way it worked at Milan. Not entirely clear on why. But uh, because of that breakdown, we had the left hand on legal not telling the right hand in finance what was going on. And so the right hand finance got slapped by the SEC for a risk that the left hand over in legal did not keep anybody apprised of. Matt, it's very difficult for me to see how the left hand could not communicate with the right hand, at the very least at the board of directors level, because the chief legal officer, chief uh, general counsel, whatever that position may be called, uh, has to report to the board, certainly on material litigation, uh, and there's going to be an audit committee or someone else in that meeting who would hear about that risk. Any idea how that could have happened? Um, So the short answer is no. But when you look at the chronology of who knew what when about the state of that EpiPen False Claims Act litigation, um, the facts do not align in a very favorable timeline here. Um, So by the end of 2013, the Food and Drug Administration and Medicare regulators had told Mylan we are investigating you for misclassifying your product. By the end of 2014, they had told Myland, you misclassified your EpiPens. They did not say you may have. You did. So right away, that means you're going to have a liability. You've got an issue. It's, you know, is it going to be $50 million, which is what Myland had originally proposed paying? Was it going to be $465 million, which Myland ultimately wound up paying? That was going to be settled along the way between 2014 and 2016. But, you know, Myland knew that there was no maybe or anything like that that you might typically disclose. 
and which Milan apparently was disclosing, oh, well, you know, we might have False Claims Act litigation sometime, some way, somehow. They knew this was going to be a thing. This was going to get settled. They were going to get whacked. It was just the size of the whack that was in question. Um, but they did not disclose that. Um, there is one line actually worth mentioning from the SEC's settlement order that I will read out here. It says, certain members of the financial team evaluating the loss contingency relating to Milan's EpiPen classification were not informed of some material developments concerning the progress of the DOJ's investigation. Like, they, they weren't told. They were supposed to be told. They should have been told. They weren't told. And because they didn't know what really was going on, they couldn't make the proper disclosures in uh, the financial statements. So because of a mishandling of a legal department issue, uh, the communication breakdown there, we, I, I don't know exactly what had happened, um, but it, there was a communication breakdown, so the finance team couldn't do its uh, required uh, duties under federal securities law to disclose these things, and so we have a mess. Uh, Matt, in your blog post, it, I would have to say, for me, the most interesting section was that section entitled Proper Structure to Break Down Silos. And in it, you discuss <clears throat> uh, risk committees or compliance councils where uh, yep. people gather to talk about these events in, in a company and, and what consequences they may have for different parts of the company. And there was something in there that really struck me that I think is significant for every compliance practitioner. And here I'm going to quote directly uh, from your blog post, which I assume is, is quoting directly, uh, well, it may or may not be quoting directly from the SEC order, but it says, that is, the quarterly discussion themselves were disclosure control for the company. And just like any other control, a quarterly meeting of the risk committee might sometimes not work, or it might be designed so poorly that it doesn't work well. I'm not sure compliance practitioners understand that the committee structures above them, whether it be a compliance committee, whether it be a third party uh, committee, whether it be the audit committee uh, of the board, that actually acts as a control. And it, when you look at it in that light as a control, it is exactly as you have suggested. It might not work. It might be designed so poorly it doesn't work or it might even be overwritten. Yeah. And so, Tom, a couple of minutes ago, you had said um, you made mention of the board of directors being informed of material litigation. And how did we not put two and two together at Milan? I'll be honest. I don't know why that failed at the board level. But on a more practical level for compliance executives and legal executives and audit executives who might be, you know, you, you have a day job at the company and you're listening to us right now. Like that part almost doesn't matter. You all, compliance, legal, audit, HR, you all should be on a in-house compliance or risk committee that meets regularly. I, I hear about these risk committees all the time from compliance officers. Um, you meet maybe once a quarter or once a month to discuss, here is what each of us are working on. Here is how it might be a risk for everybody else at the table. Um, that is how you would break down silos. And Tom, the, the part that you had said about how these quarterly discussions are a disclosure control for the company, so that, that was my words and my point. But I will say that um, I will quote something directly from the SEC's complaint. Milan's controls required quarterly discussions of significant contingencies by its financial and legal teams. Like, 
That's just what I said 30 seconds ago, that you bring everybody together to talk things out. And that was a control. And the SEC's complaint even says Milan had a control that was a meeting. And then it leads into my point that you had quoted and that people I think should appreciate. A control can sometimes not work. A control might also be designed so poorly that it generally doesn't work well most of the time. Or, Tom, as you said, it might be overridden by the CEO or the, even in the worst case, the audit committee. You know, they can make mistakes. Um, I will throw out a shout out to audit executives who might be listening. Um, You know, we often talk about how you might want to audit an enterprise risk or a strategic risk. That's what this would be. You could maybe audit the effectiveness of your compliance or risk committee to make sure that these sort of mistakes don't happen. Um, was this a deliberate mistake or I don't know, a deliberate action from Myland? Um, did they have some sort of logic which eludes me and probably many other people today about why they did this? Were they just all asleep at the switch? I don't know, but that control of a quarterly disclosure committee meeting so that the finance team would know what to put in the financial statements. That didn't work, and it didn't work repeatedly because, again, go back to the chronology. By 2014, they knew they were going to have an issue, and 2014 and 2015 into 2016, they didn't disclose that they had an issue. They disclosed, well, we might have one someday. Who knows? Um, so that's, uh, it, that was the failure. So, uh, unfortunately, Matt, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if, if uh, you could just perhaps sum up what should audit executives take away from the Milan case? We talked about perhaps legal risk and certainly compliance, but what precisely should an audit executive take away from this case? I, I think they should definitely look at how well does this compliance committee work? Um, what are the communication channels? Um, you know, you, what you really want is to make sure that there is a common understanding of what the risk is so that it is managed well in multiple ways by the finance team, the compliance team, the legal team. Um, and it's worth noting that while Mylan is the latest and the best example of these disclosure failures, like the SEC enforces this regularly. Um, this is a thing that audit, compliance, and legal should pay attention to. Um, Facebook when it was fined $100 million earlier this year for its uh, data breaches through Cambridge Analytica. The SEC fined Facebook for not disclosing the particulars of that breach. Not that it had the breach, it's that you know they were doing essentially what Mylan was doing. They were saying, well, we might have a breach someday and it could be a material event when they knew they had it the year before. Yahoo! Same thing. They were disclosing, well, we might have a breach, could be material, could be a big deal someday, when they knew that Yahoo had had a breach and it was material. You need to understand that when you have a material event happening in legal or compliance, the finance and the disclosure teams need to be on that as well. And if you don't, you wind up with uh, these sort of incidents like we just saw yet again with Mylan. Well, this has been a fascinating exploration of a case which on first blush really might not have that many lessons learned, but it turns out not only there are there a wide and uh, lengthy list of lessons to be learned, but there are multiple lessons to be learned for multiple corporate functions. So, uh, indeed. indeed. All right, well, I can't see, I wait to see what next week brings us. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. 
If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please give us a review on uh, Apple on the iTunes channel. Uh, We certainly help our ratings and rankings for this most unique podcast in the compliance space. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.